NORAD. We've heard about it. We've read about it. We've seen it in popular TV shows and movies. The North American Aerospace Defense Command is a binational organization consisting of both the United States and Canada, charged with missions of aerospace warning, aerospace control, and maritime warning for the entire North America. But what does it mean? No, seriously, what does it mean? I have no idea, but it sounds cool. It sounds important, very important. And if it's important enough to show up in 2003's fictional sci-fi thriller, Terminator 3, that's good enough for me. But what does NORAD have to do with the maniacs? We'll get to that. But despite the fact that Arnie himself is seen in Cheyenne Mountain during the Terminator franchise, NORAD is pretty cool all by itself. And in this 32nd episode of the Maniac Radio Show, we'll talk all about how the maniacs relate to NORAD. I'm Master Sergeant Andy Sinclair with the 101st Public Affairs Office, and welcome to the Maniac Radio Show. Before we jump into the Maniac fact about NORAD, we're going to hear from Bobby Joe Rogers, our new Sexual Assault Response Coordinator. This is her first time on this podcast, and she's relatively new to the Maine Air National Guard. Later, we'll talk about some things to expect this coming weekend, as well as hear from Senior Master Sergeant Duplaine, 101st Public Affairs Manager, who is currently fighting the good fight in PACOM. Side note, we had originally planned not to have him return for this episode due to the fact that he's TDY, but after a lot of positive feedback from his debut in the last episode, he was eager to knock it out, so that's pretty cool. In fact, he's even been labeled as having the best radio voice in the whole Maine Air National Guard, second to Chief Stevens, of course. Moving on, Bobby Joe is here, let's bring her in. So Bobby Joe Rogers, she's the new sexual assault response coordinator. So she took over for Carrie Mancini in February. She's going to introduce herself, tell us a little bit about who she is and where she comes from, what her goals are. So Bobby, thank you for coming in. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So um, totally stoked to be here. Uh, I, I was raised in Southern Maine, actually, um, in Acton. And I moved away for quite a period of time. I had a very long couple decade jaunt out in Hawaii and a couple year stint in Washington before I made it back home. But um, I am back home now and I'm super, super stoked to be here. I'm a lot further north than I'm accustomed to, so the snow banks in, in mid-April um, are something to get used to. <laughs> I think anybody who's been here for their entire life are still getting used to it in April. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I'm still, 29 degrees this morning was a little rough, but that's okay. I'm getting used to it. I'm get, my, my blood is thickening. Um, so yeah, so I, uh, I guess I would have to say that like over time, even as a kid, I've always been what I might call maybe a, a subtle activist. I'm not that person that's out, you know, carrying signposts and, and fighting the good fight on the steps of Congress or, or that sort of thing. But um, even as a kid, I was the person that was always trying to right whatever was wrong, you know, whether it was the, <clears throat> the neighborhood bullies or my mom scolding my sister for something she shouldn't have, I thought she shouldn't have scolded her for. Big difference, right? Big difference. <laughs> Um, but I've always kind of been that, you know, that little subtle activist kind of person. And um, I think that unknowingly, my path to be in this job here with the wing actually started at my enlistment or, or right prior to my enlistment. Um, I had just found out about the National Guard. I'd wanted to go active duty Air Force, but was a little bit too old at that point, the way the regulations read. And um, so I decided I was going to go Air Guard and started working with a recruiter, just called the number, got the luck of the draw. And uh, 
Unfortunately, that recruiter, about three weeks into the process, started sending me emails um, asking me to dinner, asking me to go for drinks. Um, he even made a point to put little sub notes in there, this needs to stay between us, don't let this get out, kind of a thing. Um, thankfully, I never bowed to that, those offers. Um, clearly it was inappropriate and it made me extremely uncomfortable. I kind of did a roundabout thing to get a new recruiter um, and was able to do that. Specifically requested a female for my comfort level, got that and then here I am, you know, 20 years later. Um, but that's kind of how my Air Force career started and I, I knew that it wasn't right. I knew that it shouldn't be happening, but I still wanted to be in the Air Force. I still wanted to serve. I still wanted to do something. Um, so kind of from day one, I had my defenses up. Um, and while I didn't have the right tools to handle it the way I handle today or the way I teach people to handle it today, um, I was on a mission to make sure people were comfortable um, in the workspace. And uh, so fast forward about seven or eight years, I had the opportunity to do um, a Title X tour with a special operations group. And we unfortunately had an assault that took place within the command. Um, and this was right in the early days of the program. So we didn't really have a good program in place. And I certainly wasn't a part, part of it. And uh, our chief of staff at the time came to me and said, you know, Bobby Joe, uh, so-and-so this happened to them and they would like for you to be their advocate and I did not want to disappoint him or anybody else and so I just said sure but I will be honest in 2008 I could not have told you what it actually meant to advocate for people over time I realized I'd been doing it my whole life I just didn't know it in that con con uh, concept um, so yeah so here I was, all of a sudden an advocate, didn't know what I was doing, but I was the advocate and I was gonna make the world a better place. Um, and so over time, it just, it was training, it was uh, exposure to people's private um, situations when they needed assistance that just kind of made me realize that this is, this is what I wanna do. Uh, I've always been in different positions where I was customer service, helping people, whether it was um, on a more personal level or just from a customer service perspective. And this was a way to take it one step further and no kidding, be part of getting them safe, getting them healthy, and getting them well again so that they could t continue their career, if nothing else. There are two types of people who, who are in the working world, I guess. So people who go to work, they do their job, um, they go to lunch, they do the bare minimum, they go home, and then they wake up the next day and do it all over again. The other groups of people are the people who are passionate about their jobs and it makes them that much more motivated and that much more efficient at their job because they actually care about what they're doing. Not to say that there is a majority of people who don't do that, but let's, I mean, the, the truth of it is that there is. There, there are people out there that, that don't, that aren't passionate about their jobs and hate their jobs. Let's just, let's just put it that way. People hate their jobs. True. <laughs> so based off what you were telling me with your experiences, it makes you a very qualified candidate for what you do for your job because you are, you sound like you're very passionate because of your own personal experiences. I'd like to think that that is um, the big push for sure. Um, I, I've had experience at a few different commands and they've un unfortunately prepared me to do this job at the very next level. Um, but yeah, it's definitely part of who I am. Um, as a matter of fact, um, my significant other makes jokes about, uh, I don't know if you've seen the Ice Age movie, but the whole you found your herd kind of a thing. So I had my, my chunk of time off between my move from Washington to here, and I kind of went 
you know, little bit of a slump because I wanted to be working and I wanted to be helping people and I wasn't doing what I do. Um, and the day that I got the job offer and accepted it, I was so happy. And that's what he kept saying, you found your herd again, you found your herd again. And, and this is what this is what I love to do. I am happy when I wake up in the morning to come to work. Um, you know, we all have our tired days and we want to stay under the covers and buried in a pillow, but I love getting up and coming to work. I love walking around and meeting the people in the wing and saying hi, even if it's just popping my head in and making a goofy joke and running away and they're left to wonder, why did she even do that? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I love what I do and I'm not a job hater. Not to say you were in Washington either, but you, like you said, when you found out you got the job and that you, you were very excited about it, which tells you that you were excited about working here or, or doing this stuff again. So not necessarily about the maniacs. We can we can blame it on that because who wouldn't want to work for the maniacs? But um, just the just in the program and the realm that you're in now, right? So. Absolutely. And no, being being a maniac is actually really exciting for me as well. Um, for the 23 years that I lived away from the state, um, when I would meet people, lots of my friends in Hawaii, it was kind of the joke. Like, I didn't even realize that our Maine Air National Guard, that we were the maniacs. But, you know, everybody from Maine's a maniac, and that was kind of the joke. And I spent 23 years with people from away calling me a maniac, and now I am officially a maniac, and I like that. Yeah, maybe for two different reasons, right? Yeah. Maybe sometimes they thought, yeah. But uh, now you can that's say that's hey, another I, podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a whole different episode. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. So, what about uh, what about education, schooling, all that all that stuff? What have you done to get to this point to be qualified for this job? So, I think a good way to answer that actually is just to talk about what we are required to do and have to be credentialed, whether it's to be a SARC or a victim advocate. The credentialing is the same. The the position title will be different. Um, but the credentialing itself is the same. We as Department of Defense advocates are required to have a 40-hour class um, that is extremely intense, probably could be dragged out to 80 hours and would still be just as intense. Uh, and it covers stuff like ethics and victim care, a little bit of paperwork and management, of course, with every program we're going to have that. Um, we get education on trauma, trauma-informed response. Um, I've been to courses about the neurobiology of trauma so that I can understand and help the rest of the advocates and even our, our wing members understand you know, how trauma affects people's reactions, why we might see a victim act one way and another victim act a totally different way. Um, that's been a really great piece of my education uh, because I've been able to actually put that out Trauma is trauma. Um, it's different for every human being, and what caused it is different for every human being. But the way our bodies react chemically, um, it's incredible. And it's, it's incredible to see that, you know, somebody who survived a really horrible car crash might react the same way as somebody who was just assaulted. Um, so that's been really neat. Um, we're required to keep that credentialing up. Every two years we have to re-credential, so we have to have at least 32 continuing education units. Um, so similar to teachers, I don't know what their numbers are, but teachers, nurses, doctors, they have to continue their education to maintain uh, currency and relevance. Um, as D Department of Defense advocates, we have to do the same thing. We're nationally credentialed um, in just a lot of a lot of self-educating myself, a lot of reading, a lot of being out there, going to conferences and that sort of thing. Networking. Absolutely, absolutely. An efficient combination of between being passionate about your job um, and then also having the experience and education that that, that um, 
enables you to do your job, that makes you a very powerful asset to have here at the wing. And, and I, I think that for myself, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to speak for anybody else, but I, I'm kind of ignorant to how the whole process works um, with other people's jobs. Like, how do they just do you just apply for it on USA Jobs and hope for the best, or do you have to? Um, do you have certain KSAs? And there definitely are requirements, if, if I can cut in. There definitely are requirements in terms of experience and education. Um, it's not something that you can just, somebody off the street who's never even been a part of it can just jump in and do it. Um, depending on which position, victim advocate full-time or SARC position, those sorts of things will determine just how much education you need versus experience and vice versa. Sometimes you can interchange the two. Um, but it's definitely something you got to have some background in before you can can jump into a full-time, I call it, caretaker position like this. Now, were you uh, or are you, because I know you're still part of the Hawaii Air National Guard. Yep. Was that your job on the military side as well as a SARC, or what would you do for them? So initially, um, when I first became a victim advocate, I was a, what we call a volunteer victim advocate. I had my drill status job. I was doing Title X tours all over the place, and being a victim advocate was my volunteer um, piece of it, always part of it, always. In the early days, we didn't have credentialing either. There was probably a good five or six years early in the program um, before they started the credentialing process. Um, up until about 2013, I believe, I was just a volunteer victim advocate, and then the wing um, had a need for um, for somebody to be up there full-time helping with that. At the time, the SARC position was still an additional duty for the executive officer to the wing commander. Um, and so I, I got lucky. Um, my SARC had a lot of faith in me, and she was able to rally um, a position for me to come up and work for a couple of years as a, as a full-time Tempire victim advocate. So that, that got me um, some really good experience just with the overall program management piece of things. Uh, and then when I moved to Washington, that's when I was able to secure a full-time victim advocate position, and, and it just kind of became everything that I did. It wasn't just my volunteer life, it was my work life, it was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's awesome. That's good. It kind of ties back to the whole passion thing. What are your goals with this new position here at the Wing? So I'm still learning uh, the personalities and the culture of the Wing up here. Um, so I have not set goals that I'm willing to make super public just yet. I need to sit back a little bit and just watch where we need to be and what, and what we need to do. Some sponge action kind of. Absolutely, forward. absolutely. I can come in with thoughts of, you know, at this command I did this and at this command we had these issues and some of those issues are across the board issues. So definitely some things that go with that. Um, but I want to see where we're at with the wing. Uh, Carrie left a really great program. Um, and thankfully, she has been open to answering questions if I have them to say, hey, you know, how, how did you handle this? I want to make sure they're ready for me to, you know, be this aggressive or not be this aggressive. Um, but, my, but my biggest goal, my, my goal that I will share publicly for now is that um, oftentimes my program has a bad name. And I think that that, that really stems from the early days of the program where as, as a whole, the Department of Defense, all of our branches, we were being very reactive to this not new problem, but just very newly, highly publicized problem. And so oftentimes we're kind of seen as the sexual assault police or, you know, something of that nature. You know, I walk in, I kind of make the joke, like I walk into the room and everybody stops talking 
you're probably wrong. Right, the locker room. Unless talk, you're yeah. planning my birthday party, yeah. you're probably wrong. <laughs> yeah, except, okay, so and so keep I kind of kind of tell, yeah, keep that in mind, people. It, Drew, if you're listening, <laughs> keep that in mind. Yeah. So I kind of um, kind of go with that, and what I really would like to do, and in, in, is to get people to understand that our program is not about finding the people who do bad things. Our program is first and foremost victim support. Um, providing resources, providing moral support, assistance to exams or court appointments, whatever, whatever that victim might need and it goes at their pace in, in what they're requesting. The other half of our program is the prevention piece, the education piece. And it's not educating people to not assault people. If you're old enough to join the Air Force and you're credentialed enough to join the Air Force, you should probably already know that. You should. Um, so it's, it's yeah. not my job to teach you not to do that. Um, so to, to just help reshape the, the thought process where our program is concerned so that people are one or not as agitated by it or as offended by it. I think offense might be the wrong word, but but some people really are rubbed the wrong way. Defensive. They, defensive, yeah. I can, yeah, that's a good word. Um, so to just get people to really understand that, that we're good people, we're here to help people, we're not here to hurt people, um, we're not here to make life tough for anybody, we're, we're here for victim support first and foremost, and to help teach prevention so that hopefully we can, we can eliminate this a bit. And with that, I think another important piece is that um, in our reactive years, it was very military-on-military uh, military assault. Why are these military members doing this? Fact is, some military members do assault other military members. Some military members assault civilians, but it's not the majority, it's not even close, it's a very small percentage. This program is to support anybody who has been assaulted at any time, before military service or after military service, by a military member or by somebody not even in the military. Um, so I think that would be another piece of that. Get to know us and who we are, that being my goal, is to recognize that, that this isn't just about military on military, or blue on blue, we, we tend to call, refer to it as. Um, but it's, it's just for victim support, really. And so uh, just to kind of tie back to what you were talking about a little bit earlier with the education piece of it, that second part of your job, that, is, that doesn't just fall on you guys, your program, that's, that's everybody, right? Like if I, if I hear or, or see something going on, especially as a senior NCO, um, it's anybody wearing the uniform. It's not just based on your rank, right? Yes, yes absolutely. And one thing, one thing with that, and I'm glad you used that, that senior NCO piece of it. Um, as military members, as human beings, really, we see somebody in a position of authority and we automatically go to, uh, if I can use you for an example. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sergeant Sinclair knows everything because he's an E7 and PA and he knows everything about public affairs. Probably not probably true. Not. Yeah. Your, your great troop probably don't know everything. Like safety, this is the, one of those programs where it's not about rank ever, really. Uh, what we have to recognize is that while you may be a senior NCO, there may be things that you deal with in your, your world, whether it's something another family member went through, something you remember as a child, something that happened in boot camp. There could be anything that you're dealing with. Um, and we all have our personal barriers. So how do we get past that? How do we get to a point where we don't have to say, hey, you're the senior NCO, you should have taken care of that. 
we start to create a culture, an environment where we don't have to deal with stuff like that. Especially if you're lower ranking, you just think like, oh, I don't have to deal with it because there was somebody else in the room that was higher ranking. They should have dealt with it. Exactly. And we need to stop that focus because that the rank isn't an issue when we're dealing with a human issue. And this really is a human issue. You know, it's crazy too, and not w without getting into too much detail. If I were to bet money, I would say, okay, yeah, with this program getting more and more active, the less bad things are happening. And it's not true. And it, it's, it's unfortunate because how is this stuff still going on? That's my whole point, is it doesn't just fall on, on your program. You educate the rest of us and we should be the eagle eyes, like for security forces, being able to see and, and report all of that stuff. So if I can lend some some perspective to that, that's that's a really great lead-in for something. This is 2019, this shouldn't be happening. But the reality is, there is a very small concentration of the human race that is just, they do bad things. That's a fact, right? And if you remember when you went through MEPS 12 years ago, I went through 20-ish <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Um, when I went through MEPS, there was no question on my questionnaire that said, Miss Bobby Joe Rogers, are you a sexual predator? Are you a sexual harasser? Are you a bully? There were no questions on my questionnaire that said that. The only way to catch that would be if I had been and had been caught and convicted, right? So when we, when we ask that question, why is this still happening in 2019? Well, it's because the military were a small pie slice of society. And there's no way to screen for that before somebody comes into the service. So how do we take care of that? You cannot change culture by command and control, which means we each have to take an individual responsibility. Like you said, whether it's junior enlisted, senior enlisted officer, we have to take that individual responsibility, be the eagle eyes, uh, and just kind of look out for each other and practice not just the good wingman concept, but good human being concept. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, we're all in this together. And it's like that with any anything else. It doesn't have to necessarily be SARC related. It could be al alcoholism, it could be anything. Like we should all be looking out for each Absolutely. other. And I think that that is the biggest problem is I think a lot of the times, I think rank can be intimidating, especially if it involves like a higher, much higher up. It's just like uniform corrections. Like if I have my uniforms jacked up, it doesn't, you don't have to be higher ranking than me to, 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 to mention that. It could, be the, it could be an E1 that says, hey, you know, your, your collar's back, you know, whatever. And so. the sad irony to that is that people are likely more willing to correct you on your uniform than they are to correct you on your behavior. And that comes down to very human, very personal barriers, right? So how do we work with the barriers we have? We can't, we maybe can't push them down, but we'll learn how to work with them. And that's actually what this year's annual training is going to focus on, our personal barriers and how do we work with what we have. Uh, in the last podcast, Senior Master Sergeant Plain went down and he interviewed uh, Drew Matlins and kind of talked about the Hawk, the Health and Wellness Center. Yes. The newly formed, centralized, one-stop shop for yourself, Tracy Souza and Drew Matlins. So what are the benefits of the Hawk? And, and if someone wanted to come see you specifically, do they have to go to uh, the Hawk to see you. We also have Heather Audette down there with the Yellow Ribbon re uh, Reintegration Program. Um, so benefits of the Hawk, those of us that are have been placed down there in this new Health and Wellness Center, we're kind of the, the resource people, right? Whether it's psychological health or reporting an assault or hey, I want a, a good um, veteran-friendly caterer, whatever, you know, Drew has so many resources down there, resources I never would have even thought of, and Heather as well. The benefit is that we're kind of a one-stop shop. 
Um, if you if you go to Drew because he's the resource guy, he may not be the guy to help you, but he's going to be able to get you to one of us who can help you, uh, and vice versa. You know, if I'm having an issue with um, with a victim maybe needing a certain type of a resource, I can go have a conversation. It will never include the victim's information or, hey, I'm working with a victim, but I can say, hey, you know, if I ever needed X, Y, Z, where can I go for that? So we can work closely together without having that um, perception that we're under the eagle eye, if you will, right? Um, being located in a building with senior leadership, with command leadership, we have a great command here. I have had such great support since I've been here. It's not something that I'm concerned with, but on the other end of it, from that perspective, when, you're, when your head is in that place, it's not always something that you're comfortable with. Um, so we're kind of set down, out of the way, uh, mixed in with the horizon in enough that, you know, there's nobody saying, oh, they walked through that door, they must be going to Drew or must be going to Bobby Joe. Um, but we're enough out of the way but mixed in, so it gives us a nice little blend. Um, but with that, if somebody needed to come speak with me or wanted to come speak with me, they don't have to come to the Hawk. They can give me a call, shoot me an email. We can make arrangements to sit somewhere else, um, whether that's the chapel or go sit at Starbucks or go sit on a park bench. Um, I want to provide a, an opportunity for anybody to be comfortable in having the conversation with me, whether it's about their own personal experience or uh, an experience with a family member that they're trying to figure out how to help with or, or what have you. Um, so the, the only real limitation on that is that I cannot come to anybody's personal home. I cannot, you know, do anything like that. Um, I can, however, you know, meet you at Starbucks, meet you at a park bench, meet you in the middle of the mall, wherever you're comfortable having that conversation with me if you're not comfortable coming into the Hawk. But I do have candy at the Hawk if you want to stop by for a chocolate bar. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, and I think Drew, Drew still does too, right? Drew does. Tracy does. I'm pretty sure wow. Heather does. Go yeah. sugar it up before you go back to work. Yeah, there you go. So before we wrap this up, is there anything you want to add? Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? I think that I would just like to say, come say hi. Come meet me. Shake my hand. Um, the more people that know where my office is, the more people that uh, make a presence, the more comfortable it's going to be for those that need me to make their presence as well. So don't be afraid to come over. Very good. And can we get some contact information for you? Absolutely. So the office number is 207-404-7008. How about an email? And my email address is um, bobby.j.rogers2. Bobby with a Y. <laughs> no D in Rogers. Um, .civ at mail.mil. That's awesome. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you again. Absolutely. Thank you. And we'll, uh, we'll do this again soon. Nice. Thanks again to Bobby Joe Rogers for stopping by and doing that interview. Really quick, I want to talk about some important things that are coming up this weekend. Brigadier General Young, commander for the Maine Air National Guard, is retiring. Brigadier General Mishu, formerly the maintenance group commander, will be taking over for him, so he will be our new Maine Air National Guard commander, so that's pretty cool. Congratulations to General Young on your long and prestigious career filled with accomplishments and outstanding service to our state and country. Also, congratulations to Brigadier General Mishu with your new position, as well as your new promotion. We look forward to see what you plan on bringing to the table as the new Maine Air National Guard Commander. 
With that being said, Colonel Ian Gillis will be taking over as the maintenance group commander. So congratulations to Colonel Gillis on your new position. Maybe we'll get him on the podcast in the future to talk about what his plans are in his new role. So if you happen to see General Young, General Mishu, or Colonel Gillis around this weekend, stop them, congratulate them, thank them for their service. Between the three of them, they have many years of experience and service to our country. So again, congratulations to all three of you. As I mentioned earlier, Senior Master Sergeant Duplain is in PACOM. He is currently there with our civil engineers, and they're out there helping that unit build some stuff. You know, what CE does. But Senior Master Sergeant Duplain interviewed one of the airmen who was stationed out there, and they kind of talk about how beneficial it is to have these deployments for training and these other units come in and help them out. So without going into it any further, here's Sergeant Duplain. This is uh, Senior Master Sergeant Duplain. I am with Craig Animoto, and he is a Staff Sergeant yes. stationed at Bellows. Yes, sir. And uh, you got a different uniform on. you got this slick kind of <laughs> shirt on, a uh, polo. Definitely. Embroidered, says Bellows. What's, uh, what's the deal with that? So with that, it's in... Uh, so FSS, they have the um, khakis and polo shirts at the gym. Fortunately enough, we fall under an FSS unit here. Um, so we get the polo. Unfortunately, the, the name tag does get in the way, so we had it embroidered. Um, and then khakis for CE jobs, that's, that's kind of a no-go, you know, being outside in right. the weather and, and the, the mud that we are normally in. Um, khakis will get damaged on the first day, so right. they authorize us to be wearing these dark blue. Yeah. So it's, it's nice. It's a lot more comfortable. Yep. No, they definitely look sharp. <laughs> so I was, I was a little jealous when I got here. Yeah. Saw you guys in those. So um, you are, uh, what's your role in this DFT? So in this DFT, I'm actually the um, project manager. So I oversee everything going on, you know. The, the five units that are rotating in and out, I oversee all of them. I am also the customer, per se, if you want to go it that way. Um, on top of that, I also run operations management. I'm the NCYC for the CE ops management side. Um, yeah, dirt boy by trade, yeah. doing those big things with structure stuff. It, it's it's different for me. Oh, sure. <laughs> and then kind of overseeing this whole project. Yes. Uh, I don't think people have a true appreciation for all the little things that can uh, kind Definitely. of come and go and, and the obstacles that you have. Uh, so for you, um, having this DFT, how would you say you or your organization has benefited from, from having it? So having the DFT, right now we are an eight-man shop. So that's four active duty um, you know, slots along with four civilian slots. Our active duty are literally broken down to one per, you know, so we have one electrical, one HVAC, one heavy equipment and pavements guy, and then one plumber. So we rely heavily on DFT. Um, so our civilian sector, sorry. Our civilian sector, we have two structural mechanics and then two electrical. So you can see how small our shop is. Yeah. Um, with DFT, they actually knock out our bigger projects that yeah. would take us months to even a year to complete. They do it within two months time frame. Yeah. Um, they also have been beneficial to us to come in and do some PM maintenance, you know, um, on like say our HVAC. One HVAC guy having six different hats, kind of hard for him to get around and, oh, yeah. and do some PMs on his HVAC units. So with DFT, it gets knocked out, no yeah. issues there. So it helps, definitely, um, definitely helps for sure. Yeah, and Chief Riddle was saying uh, this morning that uh, 
it's for his folks to kind of get that repetitive going out and working on yes. a couple of HVACs in a row and, and uh, working on them in different configurations and such. Yeah. It's, a, it's great for the airmen and supervisors right. to kind of work through those projects. So it's a great too, training so. aspect. You know, for Prime Beef, we're always sustaining something. So yeah. um, with them coming in, they're sustaining what's already here, um, the HVAC units. Of course, some of our units will go down while they're here, so they get the opportunity to install some new stuff as well. Yep. Um, which takes an eight-man shop to do, you know, and it takes us a couple days. Right. These guys knocked it out in the day. Oh yeah. Daytime for so yeah, they're they're definitely moving on. They know what they're doing. So. Yeah. No, I saw they installed one new one twice. <laughs> that was a know, uh, manufacturer was issue. Yeah, so. so. But I was like, geez, you guys put in another one, but. Yeah. It was like deja vu the second day, so when I went back. <laughs> I'm a little slow anyway, but uh, yeah. So, uh, what is it like? What do you guys want to accomplish here, and how's that looking for you? So, our projects here, you know, it. We'll we'll go with the, the troop training classroom here. Um, it initially started off as a bunkhouse. Unfortunately, there were some things that happened here, um, to where we can't put in a septic system as of yet. We are working that. This is going to end up turning into a bunkhouse, um, which will house 30 people. So, with that being said, um, 24 male, 6 female, unless it's an all-male team, then higher-ups in one end, yeah. you know, the lower ranking in the other. I'm not trying to down sure, the lower yeah. ranking, but right. that's just nature yeah. of the beast. Um, it does help us out because that frees up X amount of cabins. Um, right now, they have 22 cabins dedicated to DFT. Wow. Um, so, if 30 people can stay in here, that takes away a good six cabins, um, seven cabins at most. You know, away from us utilizing there, we can resell it out right. basically to the, the other people who's wanting to come in for vacation and yeah, stuff no, like absolutely. that. Yeah, so. absolutely. And you guys are on a for-profit business, yes. so, uh, you know, every dollar counts, I'm Yes, sure. it does. Uh, <laughs> that is for everyone in the Air Force right now, so uh, that doesn't go away. Uh, and what's your big takeaways from, from this, from running this project? So big takeaway, you know, me coming in, like I said, as a pavements and equipment guy, um, I'm learning on the fly um, structures you know trusses I'm learning walls how to put them together how to lift them up you know I'm learning all of this different stuff and in my my eyes it's gonna help me later on in life you know if I decide hey I'm gonna go build my own house right this is helping me out oh, you yeah. know helping to learn um, so there, there's a lot of takeaways from this it, it's not only for myself as lear a learning thing it's also beneficial to our guys that's gonna you know come after me so right. Definitely um, trying to make it better, you know, like I said, first year, yeah. um, it's going to, there's going to be some hiccups procuring materials and stuff like that, but as we go on from now till I leave, and of course, you know, the next rotation is going to start off the same way, right. my guy will come in and he'll end up trying to run this and it'll be differently for him, oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely a uh, good stepping stone going yeah. from here. Absolutely. And um, how did you guys end up uh, working with Canadian forces, or how, how did that even come so about? So that came up um, from the guy I ended up taking over for, you know, techni Technical Sergeant Fallon. He's a great guy. Um, he wanted to throw that in there because they, they do DFTs with the National Guard Bureau um, up in Canada. So why not host them here for a year, you know, so on. Um, it also helps out whenever you go deploy downrange, you know, you, you're going to have these different forces there. Um, if we get a you know base established here with them going into the uh, next 
Floyd location, they'll, they'll work hand in hand easily. Right. So. Yeah. No, that's that's for sure. And I even think coming out um, out of a drill weekend for these these folks to come out and kind of integrate and work and 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 their projects and, and that seems to be beneficial for the shop growth you know? definitely yes uh, seeing how they all got to kind of wait for one or get busy doing something or lend a hand with right. some from another shop because they're waiting for that next piece before they can start exactly so, uh, it's, it's definitely interesting like you said i've i've certainly learned a ton and uh and have a better appreciation for right. C just coming to fix my heat <laughs> or you know hang something up exactly, i'm not allowed right? to drill the wall but you know when you come here and see what they actually do and uh, the long-term benefits, and, that, and it actually is real training. I think it's uh, it's, it's good stuff. So um, I think that's all I have. Is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, I'd, I'd like to extend a you know gratification from our unit here to to the teams that's already been here at the 103rd first, along with the 19 MSS out of Comox, Canada. Yeah. Um, your unit for, from Maine being yeah. here, and then so on. You know the Nova Scotia unit that we have, and I believe South Carolina is coming in next. Yep. You know, I'm gonna extend that. Thank you. Um, you guys have been killing it for us. It, it's crazy to see going from bare grounds to now there's a building standing in a right. matter of yeah. a month. Yeah. So. Yeah. Like when we got here, it was a platform. Yeah. I wasn't really sure what it was. <laughs> uh, trying to figure it out, but now now it looks like they don't have the roof on. Definitely. So. Yeah. It, it's cool. yeah. They ran into some issues, but um, it's all been squared out and. To go now, so yeah. and you even got to swing a hammer, and I got proof of it. Yeah, yeah. good job, that, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we'll be sure to share that with you guys. So, um, well, great, I appreciate having you, and um, and look forward to uh, your success. So, thank you. Like you got a good, good head start on it. Good, good head start. Um, and we'll definitely hope to see you guys back out here again. Yeah, I'm <laughs> um, with you there. Let's do our maniac fact. The year is 1985. Coca-Cola introduces something called New Coke, whatever that is. The world brings us the compact disc, the Titanic wreck is found deep in the Atlantic, and the average gallon of gasoline was $1.09. Times have changed. Well, as the saying goes, great things never came from comfort zones. In 1985, the people of Maine took a step outside those comfort zones and stepped into a KC-135E Stratotanker. What does the E stand for? You're asking the wrong guy. We've had E models, A models, and R models, but I have no idea what they mean. Maybe that'll be in the next podcast. Spoiler alert, the answer will probably come from a maintainer or a pilot. And those same maintainers and pilots are probably shaking their heads right now. As I was saying... Maine citizens got the chance to fly in one of our tankers, but not just some random Andy Sinclair or John Duplain off the street. No, these maniacs for a day were civic leaders and civilian employers that climbed aboard after hours of safety briefings, I'm sure. And with one of our top-notch maniac crews flew to Colorado Springs, Colorado, where they had an opportunity to tour the NORAD headquarters and surrounding facilities. From what I can gather, the tour was designed to inform guests about the newly formed over-the-horizon backscatter system out of Bangor, its capabilities, and why it was pivotal to our nation's defense. If you remember back a few episodes here on this podcast, we talked about the over-the-horizon backscatter system and its capabilities and how it impacted our nation as a whole. If so, if you're interested in that, go listen to episode 30. 
It seems that securing the public's trust was just as important in the 1980s as it is in today's world. I have in front of me several letters of appreciation from the various individuals who attended the tour, thanking Colonel Roy Martin, commander of the 101st in 1985, for the outstanding support and opportunity the trip to NORAD produced. The thank you letters range from large organizations like the Maine Department of Transportation to local businesses like Grant's Dairy and the Bangor Mall, even members from local school systems like the Bangor School Department, Maine Maritime Academy, and Center Drive School in Orrington flew to NORAD for the tour. Pretty cool stuff. It's not every day that civilians have the chance to fly on a military aircraft halfway across the country to tour one of the nation's top government facilities. Also, did I mention their flight to NORAD included a mid-air refueling? Of course it did. They wouldn't be getting the full experience if it didn't. I want to share with you a thank you letter sent to Colonel Martin from one of the guests, Fioni F. Look. Mrs. Look was a Jonesboro resident and would go on to the following year in 1986 to serve five terms in the State House of Representatives until 1996. The letter reads, Dear Colonel Martin, Please accept my sincere thanks and deep appreciation for your kind invitation and subsequent tour to the NORAD Center and other places around Colorado Springs. I shall always remember this tour as one of the highlights of my life. The courtesy and consideration shown by yourself and the crew was outstanding. Our trip was very relaxing and informative. The tours of the three facilities were very educational, yet a bit disturbing when one considers the precarious position of our defenses should the international situation become more tense than at the present. This tour has given me a far greater insight into the quote, Star Wars issue. I returned to Maine on September 25th in a Lockheed 1011 from Denver to Boston, then on Delta's regular flight to Bangor. The trip was nice but I can't say that I enjoyed it as much as I did the trip on the KC-135. Sincerely, Theoni F. Look. That is all the time we have for this episode of the Maniac Radio Show. I'm your host, Master Sergeant Andy Sinclair with the 101st Public Affairs Office. You know, and I say that's all the time we have, like it's a short episode, but it's another long one but there's a lot of good information. And speaking of that, make sure you are telling your coworkers about the information you heard in this episode. They may not listen to the podcast, but if you do, make sure you're keeping communication open. If you're a supervisor, keeping your people informed. After all, that is the goal of this podcast, to keep people informed. But we have other ways. Check out our app. It's brand new. We're still working out the kinks, but it is operational. You can get it for Android devices as well as iOS. We even made a tutorial video on how to download the app and its functions. If you're familiar with Facebook, which most of us are, head over to our Facebook page. It's the number one video on our Facebook page. So check it out, watch it, download the app, stay informed, stay ready. Also check out our Instagram page. You can do that by searching 101STARW. Tons of photos and videos and media and all that good stuff. And last, but definitely not least, the Safe Maniac program. What do they call it, a sandwich? I'm gonna give you the number now, I'm gonna give you the number at the end, and I may even put the number in the link to this podcast. So it's almost like a sandwich with a cherry on top, if that's your thing. 207-404-7788. Most of us already know what the Safe Maniac program is, but in a nutshell, if you find yourself in a pinch and you need a ride home, and you've been out with friends, having a good time, and you're impaired, and you shouldn't be driving, don't drive, don't do it. Maniacs are not maniacs. 404-7788 
If you call that number, not only is it anonymous, so nobody will ever find out that you're utilizing the program, but the command post will send you a taxi so they can get you where you need to go safely. And that's the key, right? Safely. It eliminates the risk of you driving, it eliminates the risk of you killing yourself, and it eliminates the risk of you killing somebody else. That is just the harsh truth behind it. 404-7788. Write it down, put it in your phone, and don't drive drunk. But that's it. That's all I've got. From everybody here at the PA office, we hope you have an outstanding drill weekend. Make sure to congratulate General Young, General Mishu, and Colonel Gillis, and thank them for their service. Thanks again to Bobby Joe Rogers for stopping by. We look forward to working with her again in the future. And as somebody somewhere once said, be good, stay safe, and stay cool. Stay cool.